Let's pray as we start. Father, we are thankful for every opportunity to gather as your people. We see, we see your face, Lord, in the faces of our brothers and sisters. And that's a very precious, uh, precious thing. So we thank you for, for one another. And Lord, as we study uh, your trial and then your death, we pray that you would deeply impress us on your love, your commitment, as we see you offering yourself. As the writer to the Hebrews, Lord, says that you offered yourself without spot or blemish to God on our behalf. And so, Lord, we see, um, we see you pursuing that course uh, all through this trial. So... Help us remember these things. Equip us uh, to share these things with our children and with others, Lord. And we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit. He alone uh, can bring us out of darkness and into light. So we thank you for him. Lord, we pray for the Tom's family. And, and uh, we thank you that, that our dear sister is no longer suffering and she's in your glory. Lord, we thank you so much for her for so many lives that she has blessed through the gifts and the ministry and the kindness and Wayne, who's gone before her. Lord, we pray that you'll be honored at her memorial service this Saturday and that you will use these events to remind us all that we don't know what a day brings and that the things that are eternal are the most significant. So, Lord, help us uh, demonstrate uh, that type of faith to those around us. Esther surely did. So, Lord, we ask your mercy on Frida and Bill. Oh, Lord, our desire would be that you would raise them up. And uh, so that's our request, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are... uh, Oh, good evening, Thelma. You thought you could sneak in without being noticed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and, and Daniel, you thought you could sneak in without being noticed. <laughs> uh, we're, glad, we're glad that you guys are with us. So we are going through all the Gospels in chronological order, and we're up to Jesus' trial at this point. And so, who did Jesus first appear? Rochelle's sneaking in also. To, to, before whom did Jesus first appear? Are you talking about when he resurrected? No. In, in he, when was he arrested? What, what night was he arrested? <laughs> what, 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 in our calendar, what day of the week was he arrested? Thursday night, okay? And, and his trial proceeds through a number of significant steps. So who was he brought before first? Anybody? This is, this is humbling for the teacher as it is for you guys. <laughs> who? You, we should at least know Jesus' trial. So he's arrested. On Thursday, and who is he brought to first? Some, who's saying that? Annas. 
He's brought to Annas. And who is Annas? He is the high priest. Now, is he the high priest that Rome, the Romans installed or not? No. Excellent. He's not. What, actually, what did the Romans actually do to Annas? That's correct. I said they deposed Annas, not disposed. Last week I said they disposed him, they deposed him. So they deposed Annas, but he was still, as far as the Jews go, he was still functioning like a high priest because a lot of the Jews felt, you know, Caesar has nothing to do with the high priest. But, of course, the Romans insisted that the high priest in Israel was appointed by the Roman government. And, and so they deposed Annas, but the Jewish people still thought him as a high priest. And the New Testament actually refers to Annas as a high priest and, and Caiaphas, or uh, Caiaphas is the actual legal high priest and Jesus is now appearing before Caiaphas. First he was before Annas, now he's before Caiaphas. And what was the relationship between Caiaphas and Annas? Son-in-law. Caiaphas is Annas's son-in-law. Okay, so that means he's married to Annas's daughter, right? Is that what that means? <laughs> I think so. I have a hard time getting those right. So, so Caiaphas is married to Annas's daughter. And uh, okay, so now uh, we're studying Jesus uh, before Caiaphas, and what they were trying to do. I'm on page two twelve. There is they had brought many false witnesses forward, and they didn't make much progress. What was the re- what was the problem they were having with all the the witnesses being brought forward? That's right, Matthew. They could the the law required at least two witnesses, and the two witnesses had to agree on the crime. And they're bringing all of these people forward, and they can't find two witnesses that agree. And so this has been going on in, in early morning, uh, early Friday morning before sunrise. And so then, uh, 2.12, finally, uh, two men did appear... And they, and in uh, Matthew uh, twenty, where let's go, Matthew twenty six sixty, I think that will work. Yeah. Now the chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false false testimony against Jesus, put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Where did that come from? Is there any truth in that statement? There is some truth in that statement, right? When did Jesus say something like that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good. He said it in the Gospels. <laughs> the Gospels are the only writings of that. Well, no, Paul quotes Jesus, so he he said that. Anybody want to try that one? When did when did Jesus say something like that? 
Now, you know, you said, Doreen, last week, you said the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus said that the temple is going to be destroyed, but that's not what they're referring to, but that was another occasion when Jesus did say the temple was going to be destroyed. That's right, Rochelle. It was when he cleansed the temple and he kicked out all the money changers, turned over their tables. He, he, he said that at the beginning of his public ministry, John uh, chapter 2, when this is at the very beginning. So this was three years earlier. These guys are testifying about something that happened three years ago. Okay. And it was when they went up to the Passover, when Jesus and his family went up to the Passover, and uh, this is what he said. After he cleansed the temple, as Rochelle said, Jesus, okay, so, so the Jews answered him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Now John, looking back, makes this statement. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he, when Jesus had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them. And they believe the scripture and the word which Jesus said. So these two witnesses are referring to this incident. But they don't quote Jesus correctly, what they say. What they said in Matthew 26, uh, <clears throat> uh, where are we here? Matthew 26, 60. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it, it, build it in three days. But what Jesus actually, Jesus did not say, I will destroy the temple. He told the Jews to destroy the temple and that he would rebuild it in three days. You notice that? If we go back to John 2, he isn't saying, I will. He's speaking to them, and what he tells them is right here, destroy this temple, you guys. You destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Now, this is one of Jesus' veiled sayings. When Jesus gave this, nobody could understand it. No, no one would understand that statement when he made it that three years early. And he makes quite a number of statements like that that can, will only be understood later. And that's what John says later. When John writes, he says, we understood this after. So, but the witnesses claim Jesus was saying, I will destroy this temple. And so... Um, now, that's a serious charge, okay? And we have this veiled saying. Finally, John, John, when he writes his gospel, he looks back, and John says something very significant there. 
Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And notice what they believed. What does it say? And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what does it mean there? And they believed the scripture. What is John saying? John's relating his own experience after the resurrection. Wow, I figured it out. I realized what Jesus meant. And, and he says his disciples, what? Believe the scripture. What is he talking about? What did they believe about the scripture when John said that? Did Isaiah prophesy? But what specifically is John talking about when Jesus said, I, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up, and then they realized he was referring to the temple of what? His body, right. And so John, all of a sudden the light all comes on. Jesus, oh, he was talking about the temple of his body. Okay. He wasn't talking about the brick and mortar temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. And he told the Jews, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three, in three days. And so when John figures that out, one... He believes the scripture, but what's he believing that relates to all of this in the scripture? Amen. The resurrection. He believes the scripture that the scripture said that he must rise. And so they, he, John immediately connects this idea that I will raise it up, my body, and when he realizes that, he realizes Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament promises that the Messiah will be raised up. And that's what he means when he says they believe the Scripture. And the Old Testament, of course, taught in some veiled forms, but in places more clearly, that Jesus would rise from the dead. And Paul would always use what saying when he would talk about the Gospel? The Gospel was... What? Begin with an A. According to the Scriptures. And Paul uses that phrase in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. The Gospel is according to the Scriptures that Christ would die and that He would rise. And so, John and the disciples are putting all that together, okay, after Jesus rises from the dead. Not only did they believe, and they believe the Scripture, their faith is increasing in the Old Testament, isn't it? As Jesus fulfills all of this, their faith in the Old Testament is increasing. And as you read your Bibles and you put it all together, that's what should happen with us, right? We have it right here, and yeah, when we see what happened historically, it said we should believe our Old Testament, shouldn't we? Absolutely. And, and that's the experience they're having over this. And the other thing they believed is the word which Jesus had said. And the reason that's significant is Jesus' words are put on par with the Scriptures. The authority of the Old Testament Scripture is worthy of their belief. And the word of Jesus is worthy of their belief. You see that? Jesus' words have the same authority 
that Old Testament scripture has. And every real Christian recognizes that. We love our Old Testaments, right? And we love the words of Jesus, don't we? So that... <clears throat> All right, so... Um, <clears throat> the body that Jesus is talking about was his own body. Now, <clears throat> um, what's interesting here is the Jews asked him for a sign... Um, and so, I'm going to find my place in my own notes. As this unfolded, the unbelieving Jews did destroy the temple, didn't they? Jesus said, destroy this temple, talking about his body, and they did destroy his, his body, didn't they? So they did do that, and, and they asked for a sign, and he did raise it up in three days. He rose up the temple of his body in three days. And therefore, they did receive their sign, didn't they? They said to him three years over, what sign do you show us? What authority do you have to do this? And that was Jesus' answer. You guys destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. So guess what? They got their sign, didn't they? They got their sign three years later. I, I, think that's, I think that's kind of awesome, actually. He did, he did give him the sign three years later, and they did destroy the temple of his body. So, uh, is Jesus in control or what? <laughs> Obviously. When he said that, he, knows how, how was he, he knew he wasn't going to do three years down the road. He already knew at that time his body is going to be destroyed when he said that. Nobody else understood it, of course. Uh, so. <clears throat> but it grounded the faith. Now, returning to the trial before Caiaphas. Um, uh, let's go back to there. But at last, okay, two false witnesses. Okay, the high, priest wrote, the high priest arose and said to Jesus, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? And so, uh, <clears throat> he has not been speaking. Jesus has not been saying anything. He has remained silent this whole time. All, this, all these false accusations, all of those witnesses that couldn't agree, and even these two guys, he's remained silent the entire time. And his silence is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7, isn't it? That's exactly right. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet what? He opened not his mouth. Okay? He was silent. He actually used that word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So what Jesus is doing, of course, is fulfilling these prophecies. And, and so the high priest is, is uh, <clears throat> wanting, you know, what are they, wanting, wanting him to speak. So <clears throat> Caiaphas still knows he doesn't have adequate evidence against Jesus. At this moment in the trial, 
because the other two did not agree, he knows, oh yeah, we need to add that. We, we learn from Mark, look at this, about these two guys about the destruction of the temple, but not even did their testimony agree. So you got two guys saying Jesus said this, and we got an abbreviated version. If we actually had what both of them said, they didn't even agree. Okay, so Caiaphas is really frustrated at this point. Even with these two guys, Mark tells us they didn't agree. Okay. So, um, so he knows he doesn't have adequate evidence against Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> so, at this juncture, Caiaphas adopts a different strategy. Instead of trying to get witnesses from the past to agree on Jesus committing a capital offense, what he's now going to do is he's going to try to get Jesus to blaspheme in front of the whole Sanhedrin. That's, he, he shifts his tactic. And so we don't need witnesses from the past, we're going to use, we're, I'm going to get, Caiaphas is saying, I'm going to get him the blaspheme right here, and then all of us will be witnesses of the blasphemy, then we can condemn him. And that's exactly what he does. So, what he does is, is he puts Jesus under an oath. The high priest said to him, I put you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So, R.T. France makes a perceptive comment here in his commentary. Jesus' own public teaching and actions have perhaps given sufficient basis for the high priest to press him on the two alleged claims. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? That's one claim. Are you the Son of God? That's the other claim. So Caiaphas now is directly questioning Jesus. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Now, he probably had some reason to do that because what happened like seven days earlier? What did Jesus do seven days earlier? That's more than seven days. What might have, what might have given Caiaphas the, um, uh, the idea that Jesus had been claiming to be the Messiah? That's correct. When he entered Jerusalem, when he entered Jerusalem, that would have been, oh, I can't, it's about seven days earlier. It's a Sunday prior. Actually, it's the Sunday prior. This is Friday morning. It was the Sunday prior when he did, made the triumphal entry into the city riding on a donkey. And uh, let me get the scripture up here uh, for this. Um, uh, I lost my place in my own notes. Um, okay. Yeah. Where is it? It's 2662. No. 
What did I do? Hold on. Oh, I know what I did. Now I know where I am. Okay, so uh, when they approached the city, they were crying out. I'm looking for a reference here. Is the problem I'm having. Uh, I'm looking for it in Luke. Luke records it. Oh. No. Uh, uh, okay. So, uh, so during that, okay, during this whole... Uh, Luke 2337. Uh, oh, let me, we got to back up here. Luke 1938. Yes, thank you. So when he came into the city on Sunday, uh, the Palm Sunday, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had done. And look at what they were saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. What are they saying? He's the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, the anointed king. So on Sunday when they came in, he accepted that. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, why did they say that? Why did they tell him to rebuke his disciples? His disciples are calling out, Blessed is he who, blessed is the king, okay, that who comes in the name of the Lord. So why are, are the Pharisees saying, Rebuke your disciples. The What's that? The Romans. No, it's the Pharisees who said that. Well, he was afraid of the Romans. Well, that, that's true. There's a connection there. Um, they were afraid that the Romans would think Jesus is leading an insurrection. But, but why? What's the problem? What problem do they have? There's several reasons. But I mean, I don't know You're, you guys are overthinking it. And, and so why do they tell him, rebuke your disciples? He's allowing them to proclaim that he's the Son of God. He's allowed... He's not stopping... So why do they want him... To, why, why do they think Jesus should rebuke his disciples? Because they don't what? They don't want to recognize Christ as who he is. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Right? That's why... They don't believe, they're, they're convinced Jesus is not the son of the Messiah, and yet he's accepting this. That's the reason. They don't believe he is the king, or that he is the Messiah, and if he was a God, and if he wasn't, he certainly should rebuke his disciples, right? But he doesn't, which of course tells you what? Jesus believes himself to be the Messiah. So, obviously, if Caiaphas heard about this, 
right? Caiaphas knows this guy has been claiming to be the Messiah. So, so uh, Jesus doesn't rebuke his disciples. He accepts that because he is the Messiah, but they don't believe that. Yeah. And then one thing that use this so the uh, so the other people can you guys can pass it around. Okay. And and one thing to recognize is the fact that here comes in this shepherd in their eyes and he came on a donkey. You know what I mean? So I mean there's no way they want to recognize this guy as their king. I mean, he's coming in on a donkey. You guys are calling him king. We're not going to accept him as the Messiah. You know, a king's going to come in with chariots and you know all this for sure like all right a, so that's another david, thing in the superficial aspect of these like hypocrites. a david or a joshua exactly right right but if they read their book of zachariah what would they discover that's correct doreen that the king is coming on a cult if they if they knew their 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 scripture so so, so Caiaphas has every reason to kind of think that Jesus has been claiming to be the Messiah. So, um, all right. So he, let's just go back to Matthew and read, read through there. Uh, 26. All right. Jesus kept silent. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he places him under an oath. So um, he has to respond. There's a legal requirement. I don't understand all the details, but since he places him, since the ruler places him under an oath, you have to, he has to respond. And so he does. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Now let's, let's, let's work on the first part of the response here. So Jesus finally speaks. This is, I think this is the first time he has spoken uh, from, from the time they brought him before Annas to this point. Um, maybe that's not correct. I can't remember all of the testimony before Annas, but he's been silent a long time. Certainly before Caiaphas, this is the first time he's spoken. It is as you said. Ma- okay, the New American Standard translation, I have it there in your notes, you have said it yourself. Now this is a slightly veiled affirmative. You have said it yourself. It's different from Je- than Jesus saying, I am. Okay, it, You have said it yourself, but it is an affirmative. It's a, it's a figure of speech used there in, in New Testament and, and in Greek that is a, it's a kind of a, it's a veiled affirmative. You have said it yourself. We talk that way in English. Now, interestingly, Mark, Mark records a more direct statement in uh, 14, uh, 1462, and Mark records Jesus as simply saying, I am. He answered it by, are you, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I am. So that, that is not veiled. Okay, that's, that's direct. That's direct. Jesus may have said both, but Mark's response, that's direct. I am. Are you the 
Are you the son of the blessed? I am. Uh, okay, it'd be, it'd be too much of a sidetrack <laughs> about that expression. So Mark, this is very direct. I am. Now, what's interesting here is this time, Jesus does not answer just with the minimum. And he goes on and he makes this statement. We're in Mark, but that'll do. Not only does he say, I am, and he tells them, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have for witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Okay, Matthew? I always give, you could expand. I am going to, I'm going to expand here. Yeah. <laughs> so, first thing is, Jesus says more at this point. And what does he do? What, is he, what are these things he's talking about? Why did they... You've heard the blasphemy yourself. Why did they accuse him of blasphemy here? Because he unequivocally said that he is the Messiah. And how did he say it by quoting the, by, by that statement? How did he unequivocally say he's the Messiah by those statements? As part of his answer. I am, and you will see, who, who's the son of man? That, he's referring to himself, right? Son of man, he's referring to himself. So how is he unequivocally enforcing the I am? But what is he doing again? By, by quoting that. But where, where, where do those words come from? Did, he, did Jesus just make, those, make this up at this time? Do, do you know in a broadly where did they come from? Right. <laughs> He's quoting messianic prophecies that are undisputed. Everybody in that Sanhedrin would agree that those two statements are straight out of the Old Testament, and they directly apply to the Christ, the Messiah. One of them is from Psalm 110. Everybody agreed that this is a Messianic Davidic psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So there it is. The Lord said to my Lord. Okay? David's Lord is the Messiah who is to what? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Okay? They all in that Sanhedrin understood this is the Messiah. And Jesus is claiming to be David's Lord. Jesus is David's Lord. 
right? Right. And this is all messianic, this song. So Jesus is claiming he's this. And what about the other one? You will see the Son of Man, the Son of Man coming. It's Daniel chapter 7. On the clouds, as I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the what? Son of Man. That's, the, that's where that, just as Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels. That, that's, that's how Jesus most often refers to himself. And I believe it's because it's tied into this. And behold, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So that's the two places that Jesus says, you will see me at the right hand of power on high, and you will see on the, on the clouds of heaven. And that's when the Caiaphas says, he tears his robe and says, you've heard the blasphemy yourself. And let's go back to Matthew. This is, I like how, how we have it in Matthew. Okay, you've heard the blasphemy yourself. Now they got a lot of witnesses, right? They got at least 23 witnesses. They had to have at least 23 people present. You heard it yourself. And, what did, and he asked them that question. What do you think? They answered, he is deserving of death. All right? So, no need witnesses anymore, you have it. By putting Jesus under an oath, he explicitly answers that. They, of course, believe he is not the Messiah, and therefore he's blaspheming, which was a capital offense in the Jewish law, worthy of death. So that's how Caiaphas got it, got it going. Now, um, it's... So it's interesting, this time Jesus says more, but there may be another reason that Jesus added these words, and we've seen this as we've been studying this last week. There may be another reason. We've seen where it appears that Jesus is keeping things moving. Remember the incident with Judas? And Jesus tells Judas, Go, what you do. He actually tells Judas, go, do what you're going to do, right? And, and we've seen this in two or three places where the way Jesus act, acts is to get on with this. And I see that in here. You see, the trial has bogged down, hasn't it? The trial is bogged down because Caiaphas can't find the witnesses. And Jesus doesn't want the trial bogged down. He wants this thing to move on and he wants to get onto the cross. And he, and he says, well, okay, I'll give them what they need. See, I will give them what they need to condemn me. I will directly confess that I am the Christ, the Son of God, and they'll condemn me for blasphemy and we'll move on. 
And so I, I see that, I see that going on here, is that, uh, uh, the, the, they're stuck. The trial is stuck. They haven't been able to condemn him, so Jesus gives them some more evidence. Now, there's one other thing here, but we're still with Caiaphas here. Luke's account, Luke's account gives us some more information about what all is going on here. And we'll go to 23, Luke 2363. Okay, it's 22, there's a mistake on the notes there. It's 22.63. So Luke gives us a little more information in this interaction. There's more in this interaction with Caiaphas. So um, if you are the Christ, tell us. This is Luke's account, and that's Caiaphas. And Luke doesn't tell us he's under oath in all this. If you are the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me. All right, let oh, there's a we got to deal with two two or three things here, or or let me go. If Depending on what translation you're reading, this phrase is or is not in, in your Bible. Okay, this is a textual variant. And um, let me just show you that. Some of you, some of you are new to this. Um, let me do this. Here you go. Okay, you see, this is New King James. I usually teach from the New King James. And this textual variant, or let me go, all of these other translations here don't have that. And probably the shorter text is most likely the correct text. So without getting into all that discussion, we're, I'm going to go with the shorter text in Jesus' answer and, and not deal this or let me go thing. Okay. Um, so in the New American Standard, you know, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. Okay. So what is Jesus saying here? Um, I'm going to back up. Just what can I do that? I think I can do that. Yeah. If, but Jesus said to them, "If I tell you, you will not believe." That's pretty easy to understand. They're they're not asking him sincerely. They're they're not asking him sincerely. And I've skipped over the chronological discussion here. We can come back to that in a moment, now that we're focused on this. So, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. So the council's mind, I'm on the right-hand column now on page 213, a little below the middle. The council's mind is already made up. So, in this statement, Jesus is tacitly saying that he is the Christ, right? What he means, of course, is... If I tell you, what, that I am the Christ, which I am, you will by no means believe. Are you with me? You see that? I mean, that, that's what he's saying. If I, you know, are you the Christ or not? And Jesus says, if I tell you, I mean, if I tell you that I am, you will not believe. So he basically is saying that he is. 
and they will not believe him if he tells them that I am the Messiah. That's the first thing he's saying. You guys' mind is already made up. If I tell you, you will not believe. But he continues and he says this, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. Now, I think what's going on here, and this is a little bit harder. Jesus' point is, if he questions them regarding who and what sort a person the Messiah is, they will not engage in that discussion. They will not answer. See, if he turns this hearing around and ask them the question, they won't answer his questions. And what kind of questions would he ask? Likely, he would ask questions pointing out that he is the Messiah, but not the Messiah they expect. And so, so they will not enter into a dialogue about Caiaphas' question. Is he the Messiah or not? Well, let's have a discussion about this. And so that's what Jesus is saying. If I ask you a question regarding this question, you won't answer. You won't answer. So on the one hand, if he tells them he is the Messiah, they won't believe. They won't believe. But on the other hand, if he questions them, seeking to help them see that their understanding of the Messiah is incorrect, which is preventing them from recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, they will not engage in that discussion. Okay? They are unreasonable. They are not open to a real judicial procedure aimed at finding the truth regarding this man. If this was a real judicial procedure, Jesus or Jesus' attorney would speak on his behalf and say, no, he is the Messiah. And here's why. The question being discussed, are you the Messiah or not? If Jesus had legal representation, that would be discussed. Here's the evidence that he is the Messiah. He came into town riding on a donkey that looked like Zechariah 13 to me. That's, I think that's what's going on. If I question you, you will, you will not answer. And we have examples of this earlier when Jesus did deal with them that way. And here's a couple examples when Jesus does question them about this question. One of them is in Luke 11 and verse 20. Remember this? they were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Satan. Right? Let's back up a second. Where do we break into this? I don't know. Yeah, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by Satan. Okay. What is it? I don't know. Let's start at verse 20. Jesus is questioning them, you see. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. 
But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, he's questioning them now. Okay? So he's putting it to them. If I'm casting out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what does that mean? If Jesus casts out demons by the finger of God, that means the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what does that mean about Jesus? He is what? The king! Exactly! Exactly! That's what he's saying. He's the Messiah. But who brings the kingdom? The Messiah brings the kingdom. The Messiah is the king. So he's saying, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, and see, he's all, he doesn't say, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, I'm the Messiah. No, it's a little more veiled than that. You've got to think this thing through. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. That can only mean one thing. The king has come, and Jesus is that king. See, and so I think this is what he's saying. If I question you, you won't answer me. This kind of interaction that he had with them earlier is he's questioning them that think this thing through. I really am the king. So that, that's an example, I think, of Jesus doing what he says they are unwilling to do during the trial. I mean, if I was defending Jesus, I would say, well, you know all the exorcisms he's done. That can only mean one thing. The kingdom of God has come. That would be evidence that Jesus really is. You know, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Yeah, he is. Look at all the exorcisms he's done. This is no fair trial, gathering up the evidence about this man. Right? So, another, another example where Jesus did perhaps question them, is, uh, where is it? There? It's Luke chapter 20, verses 3 through 4. Uh, this one was really significant when he questioned them earlier. And this is about John the Baptist. Right? So, they, they, uh, uh, but he answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, and you answer me. Okay? This is, if I question you, here's an example. Luke recorded that. Isn't it, I think it's interesting that it's Luke who recorded that part during Caiaphas, and if I question you, you will not answer. And it's in the Gospel of Luke we have these two examples. And these are, I think, unique. So I think I'm just giving you some exegetical reasons why I think we're understanding Jesus' statement to Caiaphas that if I question you, you won't answer. You will not dialogue with me that I really am the Christ. And But here, here the Pharisees are dialogue. Jesus is dialoguing with them. But he answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing and you answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Why is he asking him that question? Because John was what? The, begins with a W, witness to who? 
right. John was the last prophetic witness to the Messiah. And John said, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John the prophet specifically identified Jesus as the Messiah. And he did that at his baptism. And so Jesus says, okay, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Now, Jesus, they're stuck. They're stuck. Because if they say it's from heaven, well, let me just read it. They reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then, now look at, did you not believe him? Believe him about what? Believe him about who Jesus is. John the Baptist very explicitly said Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. So if John's baptism is from heaven, you should have believed him that I'm the Messiah. That's, that's, what, that's Jesus' point. That's why he brings John the Baptist up. He's the last of the prophets. And all the prophets pointed ahead. Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming. John the Baptist, Messiah's here, and it's Jesus. Is that baptism from heaven? If they say it's from heaven, that's exactly what Jesus is going to ask them. Why didn't you believe him? That I'm the Messiah. And then, then they're also stuck between a rock and a hard spot. But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And what did they do? They became cowards. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. <laughs> well, that was a lie. They believed it wasn't from heaven. So this, I think, is Jesus questioning them about who, who he really is. But during his trial, he goes, you know, if we, you're not asking that question sincerely to where we can discuss whether I'm the Messiah or not. So, um, all right. You know, you get questions or comments. Answer. Your thought on that? I've often wondered if they rejected Christ. Uh, outwardly, but inwardly, they might have. I'm just wondering what your thoughts of being. Maybe they had the thought, like, look, we know this is most likely the Christ, but we reject him. You know, where they come to the emphatic truth, they just choose not to believe it. I mean, I've often wondered with, uh, with this right here, you know, and they said, if they, we say he's from heaven, why didn't you believe him? Right. You know, and, I, and it's almost as if how I look at it, like my mom, she recognizes Christ, she just rejects him. Kind of you, do you mean by recognizing Christ, meaning believing that he is really the Christ and, and rejecting him? I want to say yes, but I know yeah. biblically if we... Uh, yeah, I, I don't think they did that. I mean, I, I think, no, they, they were hardened in their unbelief. Gee, he is not the Christ. He can't be the Christ. He's not the Christ. Um. Yeah, I, I don't know how parallel this is to like your mom. I know, I know you you know you love your mom, and her spiritual condition is not not what you'd like it to be. Um, but I no, I think these men they firmly believed he was not 
in the face of all the evidence that, that they had. But they had to go to extremes to maintain that unbelief. Like one of those extremes was, is, well, he cast out demons by uh, Satan. See, the only way in their minds they could hold this together, because we have inherently logical minds, you see, they had to go to these extremes that, well, the, the only way he casts out demons is from Beelzebub. They couldn't deny the exorcisms. He was so powerful. So they had to come up with some explanation for it. And that's what people do. They come up with some bizarre explanation, and that's what they believe. Uh, we'll get you the microphone so that those... Yeah, you guys can, you guys can walk much... Uh, Quicker than math, you can. <laughs> A lot like how um, scientists today proclaim evolution and come up with absolute absurd theories. Yeah, because they to, can't to try to right because they can't explain, explain the. Right power of God. And how yeah, like, like the multiverse. Yeah. Right? We, we can't get it done. We cannot get it mathematically done in one universe. So what are we going to... Well, there's a multiverse. There's a multi... You know, there are billions of universes. The, the prop, One universe, the probability is it will never work with one one universe. So we'll just say there's a multiverse. Yeah. Good case in point. When all the evidence points somewhere else. Yeah. But that's what unbelief does to the human heart. Or that's, you know, the human heart is in rebellion against God until God softens our hearts. So, um, all right. Anybody, um, anybody else? You guys. Okay, I've been going kind of fast. Well, we've made some progress. We're about done with Caiaphas because now he's worthy of death. So next week we move on to Pilate because um, they cannot execute him. They don't have the authority to do that. And so they got to go before Pilate. Now what's interesting, I'll plant a little seed here. How far would they have gotten with Pilate if they walk in there, you know, they're in the praetorium and Pilate's there and they say, and Pilate said, well, you know, what case do you have against this guy? Well, he's blasphemed. How far would they get with Pilate if they went in there and said, he, he's worthy of death because he's a blasphemer? What would Pilate do? He would kick him out. I, that's a religious argument amongst yourselves. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Get out of here. So even though here they say he's worthy of death for blasphemy, when we get before Pilate, the charge is not going to be blasphemy they're going to represent him as an insurrectionist. You realize that? They're justifying before the Jewish people. They're trying to justify before themselves and the Jews that Jesus is worthy of death because of blasphemy. But when they get before Pilate, they know that's never going to fly with Pilate because he's not going to execute people as a Roman governor for blasphemy. They're polytheists. Worship as many gods as you like. So they're going to come up with a whole different strategy when they go before Pilate, that he's an insurrectionist. Isn't that amazing? That's what they do. Because they can't get a capital sentence out of, the, out of Pilate. He has to violate Roman law, see? 
They got this death, Jewish law, he's a blasphemer. But that's not going to get him executed by the Romans. He's got to violate Roman law in order for the Romans to execute him. So when they get before Pilate, they're going to represent him as an insurrectionist. Okay, with that, we'll stop. You have the microphone? Lead us in prayer as we finish. Oh, Heavenly Father, hallowed be your wonderful name. I thank you for your comfort you have showed to us in these harsh days. I thank you, Lord, that you have brought a great friend of ours into glory and a great sister and grandmother in many ways, Lord. I thank you you have taken the pain away from her quickly. I thank you how you have blessed us with her life. I thank you for <clears throat> Pastor Dan's Bible study, and I ask that we will all walk away with something on our minds as we all think about these words, Lord. I pray in your name, which is everlasting. Amen.